Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today is September 11th. And for the last 21 years, that date has gone down in the annals of infamy. It was a significant event in American history the day that New York was attacked and the towers fell. Would we all agree that that was a really significant moment in our history? Yes. Do we agree with that? Really significant event. Okay. Next question. Has anybody in this room written anything, let's say, in the last week? Anything. Did you write an email? Did you write a text? Did you write anything in the last week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we kind of got to say we all did. We, we all wrote something. Sure. How many of you mentioned September 11th when you wrote that? Because we all just agreed that it was a really significant event. Did any of you say anything about it in any of your written correspondence this week? What about this month? Are you likely to go home now and say something about it? Probably not. Okay, why do I mention that? Well, we approach the book of Revelation from what is known as a futurist perspective. We believe that the book of Revelation was written as best historical evidence tells us that it was written during the reign of Domitian which puts John on the Isle of Patmos sometime in 92-96 AD. The people who do not take a futurist position, who try to argue a historicist position and argue that most of the things that are written in the book of Revelation have already occurred or that they are spiritualized, those folks will also try to early date the book of Revelation. And they'll say that John had to have been writing before 70 AD. And one of the arguments that they make very consistently across the board is they say, well, if John was writing after the fall of Jerusalem, that very, very significant event in Jewish history, the fall of the temple in 70 AD, if John was writing after that, he would have mentioned it. It would have been in his letter. The period from 70 AD to 92, 96 AD is what? 22, 23, 24 years. In a mere 21 years, we all agreed we don't mention 9-11. So really, if you think about it in human terms, is it necessary that John mention in the book of Revelation something that his entire Jewish audience would know? No. It's part of the reason that we don't mention 9-11. It's because everybody knows it. We don't have to keep saying it every time we write. John doesn't have to mention the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of the temple in 70 AD. It's part of their history. They all know it, but that is not an evidence for the early date of the book of Revelation. Are you following my argument? Yes. It's just very coincidental that we happen to be meeting today on 9-11. And so we're going to continue to approach the book of Revelation 
as a canonical book, as a futurist book, as prophecy of what's coming up later. And the reason I mention the word canonical is because the entirety of the Bible, and this is really astounding, the entirety of the Bible from beginning to end, even though it was written over about a 2,000-year time frame, written by several different people living in several different areas of the Middle East during different kingdoms under different circumstances. You've got people like... Joseph down in Egypt becoming second only to Pharaoh. You've got Daniel becoming very powerful in the Babylonian Empire. So you've got the high and the mighty who are writing, and you've also got shepherds, and you've got tax collectors, and you've got every strata of human society writing in the Bible in different times, in different places, in different societies, in different cultures, under different kingdoms, in different locations. And yet, the entirety of the Bible, theologically, is astoundingly consistent. And we're going to see that yet again this morning. We're starting in Revelation 16. You can start at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, and you will see that once Adam and Eve rebelled against God, Once the fall happened, people ran away from God. That's what Adam and Eve did. They heard him walking in the garden, and they hid from him. They ran from him. Then the next major event in the book of Revelation is a flood to wipe out everybody. Because ever since the fall, God says that the intention of all men's hearts was nothing but evil continually. And when he looked down on human beings and saw that corruption, he killed them all, save eight people. In other words, the idea of total depravity is not simply an invention of the Protestant Reformation. The tea in tulip, even though that's a convenient way to remember it, is supported fully, completely, and continually in the Bible. And there's really no book in the Bible that you can read that doesn't talk about human depravity. But human depravity is on display in my way of thinking most obviously when God starts pouring out his wrath. Because, as you heard me say time and time again, if all it took to get somebody to make a confession of Jesus, and if salvation was a result of simply choosing Jesus and making him Lord and Savior. If free will salvation were in fact true, and all you had to do was give people a good enough reason to choose Jesus, if that was all true, then chapter 16 of the book of Revelation makes no sense at all. But if the consistent testimony all the way through the Bible of human depravity is true, human incapability, human fallingness, to the degree where we're not capable of worshiping God unless God himself is gracious to us. If that's all true, then chapter 16 of Revelation makes complete sense. For instance, take a look real quickly at uh, verse 9 of chapter 16 of Revelation. This is after the first four angels have poured out the cups of wrath of God. We have to assume it's pretty bad. We're going to get into the descriptions this morning. And human beings do not turn around and choose God. They're seeing the power of God. They recognize that it's God that's doing it to them. And all they would have to do if they had the free will ability, all they would have to do is choose Jesus and make him Lord and Savior because he's obvious Look at the things that are happening. Look at the cosmic disturbances. Look at the the water turning to blood. Look at what's happening around us. Let's choose Jesus. No, here's what it says they do. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him the glory. There's human depravity. You're actually witnessing God himself pouring out the kind of events on planet Earth that only God could accomplish. And they know it's God who does it because they blaspheme the name of God. It's sort of like Mrs. Job. We don't know Mrs. Job's name, 
We just know it was Job's wife. But when Job was going through all his difficulties and his hardships, we read that she came to him and said, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Because she recognized this is coming from God. There's no way somebody can go through this kind of agony and deny that it's God that's doing it. And so the people that are left on the planet, the people who have taken the mark of the beast, the people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world, that's what the book of Revelation has told us so far. That's how they've been described so far. That group of people, those enemies of God, when God is pouring out his wrath on them, they blaspheme the name of God, which is really significant Because you don't get more than two commandments in before you're told that you need to sanctify the name of God. God starts out with, I'm God, there's no other. You'll have no other gods before me. And then, don't take my name in vain. His name is very important to him. It's more than just his reputation. When Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Micah just talked about it on Wednesday night. Soon as you identify who God is, our Father who art in heaven, the next thing you have to say is, hallowed is your name. And the people left on the planet under the wrath of God blaspheme the name of God. You can't get more depraved than to be such an enemy of God that he would pour out his wrath on you and you would hate him for it. So that kind of does away with the idea of human free will human choice, make Jesus your Lord and Savior. God is up there wanting everybody to be saved. Then you can misquote 2 Peter 3.9 and say, God's not willing that any should perish. He seems very willing that people are perishing here because he knows the state of the human beings who are still on the planet. If he wasn't willing for any of them to perish, why is he pouring out his wrath on them? And yet they're blaspheming him. Look down at verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. That's a significant hailstone. (laughs) I mean, like, have you lifted a bowling ball? Bowling balls are 10 or 12 pounds. So like 10 bowling balls per hailstone. Yeah, we're talking significant hail here. Yeah. Or anywhere else. Yeah, you're going to know it if it hits you. Yeah. Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. See? And men reacted by choosing Jesus. No. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. Yeah, I'd say it's a very severe, severe plague. But the reaction of the people who fall under the plague is not to worship God, is not to speak well of God and venerate his name. Instead, they blaspheme against God. The word blaspheme is just like Jesus talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What it means is to speak badly about So they're cursing him, they're speaking badly about him, and they're blaspheming his name. And that is the human reaction to the wrath of God, proving yet again that what we read in Genesis was true. And that what we read from Paul in books like Romans, I mean, he starts the book, it's an astounding book, he starts with the realization of human beings are depraved. He has to establish that first. The first couple of chapters are devoted to Jews are sinners, Gentiles are sinners, and everybody is naturally under the wrath of God. The book of Ephesians, he writes the same thing. It's just a constant theological and doctrinal reality, Old or New Testament, that the Bible says human beings are corrupt And human beings are depraved. And you cannot understand and fully appreciate what God does in his grace and long-suffering and loving kindness until you can understand who you are. As long as you think you're capable, as long as you think you're good enough, 
as long as you think that you made a decision and therefore you deserve the kindness of God, you're never going to appreciate grace. You're never going to be able to truly sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In fact, many modern hymnals have changed that word wretch like me and just say that have saved a soul like me. Because modern theology is trying to dumb down the reality of human depravity so that they can say, well, you're capable. You deserve it. God sent his son for everybody. Now just choose him. Just pick him. But not only do you not find that theology anywhere in the Bible, you don't see the demonstration of that anywhere in the Bible. Made most obvious by Revelation 16. That was all introduction. Chapter 16, verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple. Oh, well, now we have to go back to find out who is in the temple. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God, the God who lives forever and ever. So now we know that there are seven bowls full of the wrath of God. As these bowls are poured out, the wrath of God increases. In this wrath of God, according to verse 1, go back there, and it says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So what we're going to read in chapter 16 is the wrapping up of the wrath of God, and it's really closing in on the time of Christ's return to avenge himself and to set up his kingdom, to regather Israel. All of that is right on the precipice as chapter 16 is occurring because the wrath of God is going to come to a close. It's going to come to a finish. And unlike what we see on planet Earth, where the people who are under the wrath of God are blaspheming God, up in heaven, they're worshiping God. Up in heaven, they're agreeing with God. They're taking sides with God. They're praising God for the fact that he's being the wrathful, vengeful God. Because he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. All the way through the Bible, he said, I'm going to do this. It's coming The day of the Lord is a reality. The day of the Lord is mentioned repeatedly in the Old and New Testament. The time of God's wrath is no surprise, biblically speaking. It's been predicted over and over and over again. And when God finally does it, everybody in heaven celebrates and worships God for finally doing what he always said he was going to do. So that means you've got to get on one side or the other. You've either got to get on God's side in this thing and worship God even as he's busy being God, or you're going to be counted among the people who blaspheme God, who is still being God. Got it? Mm -hmm. Verse 7, after it says that the four living creatures give the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God, the next thing we read in verse 8 is that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So throughout what we know as chapter 16, there's nobody in God's holy temple but God himself who has this presence that looks like smoke to John that is, as we said last week, a sanctifying of the holiest place where God alone is dwelling and no one else is allowed to come in while God is being so holy, so sanctified, so separate in the pouring out of his wrath. And he's being worshipped and nobody gets to interrupt him. Nobody gets to be in his presence. He alone is the singular, holy individual that nobody else can approach while he's in heaven doing those things that only he can do. So that's why we stopped when we read, and I heard a loud voice come out of the temple. Who's in the temple? God alone. So the next thing you hear is instruction from God. 
the holy God, the sanctified God, the separate God. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, those seven angels who have the seven bowls that are full of the wrath of God, God himself speaks from his temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God onto the earth. Isaiah tells us that God says that he is the one and only singular God, and part of his demonstration of that is he says, I create the light. God defines himself as the one who creates the light, and then he says, and I also create the darkness. And oftentimes we think of God as only being all good, all light, all love, and we forget that he is the same God who is a jealous God, a wrathful God, and who creates the difficulties, the darkness, the trials in this life. Because he then goes on to say that he's the one that creates the good things that happen in life. And then the King James says, and I create evil. What it is is the word raw in Hebrew, and what it means is the trouble, the tribulations, the difficulties, the trials of life. God takes credit for all of it. I create the good and the difficulty. So whatever you're going through in this lifetime, if you're going through good stuff, that's God. Thank God for it. Praise God. Bless God's name for it. If you're going through bad times, that's God. Bless God. Praise God for it. Because he's doing something in your life. Whether he's creating that endurance in you, whether he's creating faith, whether he is driving you back to your knees so that you recognize that he is the only God. He's the God that's in charge of everything. That's why we say he's sovereign. He's in charge of all things. That's the way the Bible describes him. And he's the one who says specifically to the angels, go make it ugly on planet Earth. It's not coming from anybody else but God. So there's no way to get around the fact that wrathful, vengeful God, doing what he's always said he was going to do, is responsible for the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations that are being poured out on the planet because God is responsible for all of it. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the first went and poured out his bowl into the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Okay, so the first bit of God's wrath that's poured out is make everybody on the planet sick. So that's a tough way to start. And the sore that grows on them is described as a malignancy. It's a growth of sores on their body, but it's really bad, and it grows fast, and it's, it's a malignancy on them. So the first piece of the wrath of God is that he pours out sickness on people. Okay, anybody here ever been sick? You better all say yes. Yeah. Okay, how many of you who just raised your hand because you've ever been sick, how many of you got well? Yeah, yeah that'd be all of you. It better be because you either got well or you died. Those are the only two options. Okay, so who's in charge of you getting well? God. God. You'd have to say, yeah, God made me well. Who's in charge of you getting sick? The same God who could have kept you from getting sick is the same God who brought about that sickness. Which means the difficulties, the trials, and even the sicknesses of life are all under the hand of a sovereign God, which means that they all have purpose. And for me, theologically speaking, in my growth and development theologically, it was a a wonderful day when I came to the realization that the difficulties of life and the sicknesses of life actually have sovereign purpose. Because before I understood that, I thought it was all just haphazard, random. It just happened. Oh, I got sick. Oh, a bug got a hold of me. Oh, I got a virus. Or, you know, I've ended up in the hospital a couple times in my life. I got knocked down a couple times hard. Well, what, what if that was just random? 
Or what if God, who could have prevented that, just didn't? Not for any good reason, just didn't. Well, that makes him capricious. That makes him cruel. That's not a God I want to worship. But when I came to understand that even the difficulties, the sicknesses, the trials of this life were still in the hand of a sovereign God, that gave me the power to endure the sickness, knowing that the end result of the sickness was that I was either going to get better under the hand of a sovereign God or go home (coughs) under the hand of a sovereign God. Because there's no aspect of human life that is not under the control of a sovereign God. And once you know that, and once you know that it all has purpose, I've said this so many times in the last 21 years, but I'm going to say it again because I have a microphone and can't nobody stop me. Um, The difficulties, the trials of life cause you to grow, cause you to learn in ways that happiness and comfort just can't do. I never learned anything truly important when I was comfortable. I was too busy having a good time. I was too busy just celebrating. Everything's good. But when God knocked me down a couple of times, I learned a whole lot about who's in control, and it wasn't me. And I learned a whole lot about confidence and faith in God, because he was going to have to get me through it. Because when I had the surgery back in 2001, ironically, the surgery that I refer to as the surgery that tried to kill me, because it genuinely did try to kill me, there was a point at which the doctors said to my mother, we've done everything we can do. They gave her the we've done everything we can do speech. And they said, tonight will be the deciding factor. He's either going to turn the corner or, this was their phrase, Total organ collapse. Okay, at that moment, it wasn't up to me. I was laying in the IC unit filled with morphine, so I'm clearly not doing anything. And it wasn't up to my mom as much as she loved me. And it wasn't up to the doctors because they said, we've done everything we can do. Who was it up to? It was up to God. I was either going to turn or die that night. And it was completely up to God. And I learned that laying in the hospital bed. Would I have learned that if I was just out dancing in the sunshine? Not that I do a lot of dancing in the sunshine. (laughs) But would I have learned that very important life lesson? No. I've never learned anything really important when I was comfortable. God is in charge of all the difficulty, all the trial, even all the wrath, all the sickness, all the sores, and all the health, all the light, all the dark, all the righteous goodness, holiness, and all the trouble, difficulty, trials, tribulation of life. Sovereign God is in charge of it. And you see it here yet again where the first bowl is poured out and it raises a loathsome and malignant sore upon men And then they are identified as the men who took the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Which is why I've been saying for several weeks now, if your option is take the mark or death, choose death. Because the end result of take the mark is particularly bad. You have malignant sores to look forward to, and that's just the appetizer. That's just getting you ready. John goes through these so quickly. Verse 3, we're already at the second angel. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. That's really significant because when God poured out his wrath, like even in the flood with Noah, granted animals died, Granted, all humans died, but the fish were fine. And we're even told that in the Bible. Fish, more water. They're good. They lived. This time, God does 
something that is not actually unique when you see the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, one of the plagues against Egypt was that Moses and Aaron put their rod into the Nile River and it became like blood. That's a precursor to this. That's God demonstrating that he can do it. And now he does it to all of the seas. Now I should point out that when we're talking about the bowls versus like the trumpets, we've gone through the seven trumpets before. There's a lot of similarities between the trumpets and the bowls, but the details are very different, which is why I don't believe that the trumpets and the bowls are the same. It's not a recapitulation of the same events because the details are very different. But during the trumpets, we did see that the waterways, the rivers, the streams became blood. That was one of the punishments at one point. But now it's the seas. And now all the animals in the sea are dying. Cutting off a major food supply, but also cutting off all travel, all trade, because so much of trade, especially in the Middle East, is done on boats. And so God is going to make the sea like blood. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Uh, Ming, you're a nurse, in case you didn't know. Uh, you're a nurse. So you're familiar with the smell of blood, yeah? Yeah, fair enough. Um, have you ever smelled putrid blood? Yeah, blood doesn't stay reasonably good smelling very long. Very quickly, blood clots and goes bad. That's what's going to happen to the seas of planet Earth. Can you imagine the stench? Add to that all the dead bodies. How quickly, Ming, does dead flesh start smelling bad? <laughs> very, very quickly. So you can imagine what the environment on planet Earth is becoming like. First, everybody's got these malignant sores all over them. And now the planet is full of blood and stench. God's just getting warmed up. Verse 4. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Okay, when it was the oceans and the seas, at least you could say, yeah, but we still got you know, some drinking water left. That was salt water. Okay, all the animals in the sea died. Okay, but we still got the streams. God doesn't even allow for that. The rivers and the springs of water, they all become blood. Likewise, everything is dying. Verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous art thou who art and who was, O Holy One, because you did judge these things. That's what I was talking about earlier, that as God is pouring out this kind of punishment, judgment, and wrath on planet Earth, the people on God's side are worshiping God for the fact that he's doing that very thing, which seems really counterintuitive to us because we're willing to worship God and praise God when he's doing good stuff, when he's making us happy and healthy and you know, fat and happy. When everything's going good for us, yeah, worship God, yeah. But things are going terribly at this point loathsome sores, malignant sores on people. Everything in the sea is dying. The streams, the rivers, the seas are blood. And the declaration from the very angel of the waters is that God is righteous while he's doing it. Righteous art thou who art and who was. That is definitional to the God of the Bible. The God who we worship is the fact that he just always is, always was, always will be forever and ever. That language of eternity permeates the Bible. 
And the only God who knows what eternity is speaks of himself in eternal phraseology and gives himself names that are eternal names because he is defining himself by the fact that he forever was and that's why he's the maker of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth as it stands right now are temporary moments in the endless life of God. And so the angel in worshiping him says, unlike the blasphemers, says glorious things about him and glorious things about his name and says that he is righteous and you are the God who always was and always is and you are holy. You are the holy one because you're judging these things. That's part of your righteousness. It's part of a demonstration of who you are and what you are like as a holy God that you have holy wrath, which you are now demonstrating, making you more holy. Yes, sir. So, uh, like, the food, when it happens with the food, like, your food that has water in it, would, the, would it turn to blood? If you have food that has water in it, does it become like blood? What we're told is everything that comes out of the sea is dying. And that all the water in the seas and the rivers becomes blood. So I'm going to say since the source of all water has all become blood, I'm going to end up having to say, yeah. In other words, there's nothing to drink and there's nothing to eat. On top of you being really, really sick. Yeah. It's not a real pleasant story, is it? No, I don't want to drink blood. Well, you don't want to be here, I think, more importantly. But I'm so happy to hear you say publicly a couple weeks before your baptism that you're not a vampire. So I'm, we're, we're all so happy to hear that. So. I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous art thou who art and who was, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, there's the irony of it, that because they are guilty of shedding blood, and that part of their bloodshed were the saints of God, the separated of God, the prophets of God. In their denial of God and his word, they destroyed the very people who brought the word of God to them. Therefore, since they seem to like blood so much, God gives them plenty of blood. And the people in heaven recognize that. The angel of the waters is worshiping God for that. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And thou hast given them blood to drink. Because they deserve it. It actually says that in the Bible. Because they deserve it. What's the justification? On what level do they deserve it? Well, the angel just told you why they deserve it. Because they love bloodshed. And the people whose blood they shed were the people of God. And the very people who were bringing them the word of God. And they would destroy those people. Therefore, it's almost like God saying, yeah, you like blood? Okay, I'll give you plenty of blood. Now all your water is blood. Verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, earlier in the book of Revelation, we heard about this altar. And we saw the saints under the altar, the martyrs under the altar that cried out to God, how long, God, until you avenge our blood. Now now God's actually doing that. And so naturally, from under the altar, we hear the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty True and righteous are thy judgments. So again, worship in heaven, not just from the angel who declares that God is right in doing what he's doing because the people of planet Earth deserve it, but then there is the voice from the altar, which I can only assume, given the consistency of what John is writing, is those martyrs that have been crying out for God to avenge them that they are now seeing it, and they worship God for doing it. Yes, O Lord, the Almighty. Notice the particular name that they picked at that moment. They didn't say, yes, O Lord, maker of heaven and earth. 
they didn't say yes oh Lord the one who lives forever and ever those things are true the one they picked was you're the one who has all the power meaning that nobody who falls under your wrath has any ability to avoid it because you have all the power you have the might you and he is using his almighty omnipotent sovereign power to avenge his saints in heaven who have been praying to him for their vengeance. It's a remarkable picture of worship and glory in heaven and recognizing the value of the God who lives forever, who doesn't change, and that he is finally pouring out his wrath just like he always said he was going to do, and so he's being worshipped for it versus people on the planet who took the mark of the beast, who were given nothing but blood to drink, who are blaspheming God as it's happening. It's a huge contrast. I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Uh, okay, so quick question. Uh, would we be willing to say God's righteous? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Are we willing to say God's holy? Yes. Okay. Are we willing to say that God is the wellspring of all truth, that truth comes from God? Yes. He's incapable of lying. Would we agree with all that? Yes. Okay, then by virtue of the fact that it is a righteous, holy, and truthful God who is doing these wrathful things then really whatever he does is by definition righteous and holy and true. And yet there are people in heaven declaring it back to him. That is part of what the worship of God is, to declare to him what he already knows. He knows he's righteous. He knows he's holy. He knows he's honest. He knows, he knows he's almighty. And yet, true, genuine worship. This is heavenly worship. This is a perfect example of how to do worship. People are saying back to him his characteristics, his attributes that only he could have out of all of the creatures that have ever lived. He singularly, he alone, he completely separate embodies what it is to be holy and righteous and true and he knows it and he wants his people to come declare it to him. If you ever find yourself at a loss for what to pray or how to pray, what words to say, start there. Start with, you're the righteous and the holy and the true God, because that's what they're declaring in heaven. Amen. So take sides with God and declare, worship, praise his name, as opposed to blaspheming his name. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty and true, true and righteous are your Judgments. So he's pouring out judgment at the same time that he has people telling him how righteous, holy, and true he is for doing the very thing he's doing because I keep insisting that it's perfectly in keeping with the whole of his word. He has been saying for thousands of years that he's going to do this, and now he's doing it, and therefore he is completely true, completely honest, completely righteous, completely holy in doing it because he has always said he was going to do it. So is there anything unfair about this? No. I mean, it seems like kind of dark times on planet Earth. And the people on Earth who are blaspheming his name don't feel that it's very fair. But is it fair? Yes. Yeah, because he's always said, I'm going to do this. And you can get to Daniel in the Old Testament, and you've got Daniel prophesying that this was going to happen. So it's not like anybody hasn't been told. And the book of Revelation has been around for a couple thousand years. Nobody gets to plead ignorance. Verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it, to the sun, to scorch men with fire. So as if your malignant sores weren't enough, and as if the stenching blood was not enough, now the sun itself is going to become so intensely heat. Talk about your global warming. <laughs> the globe is going to get excessively warm. And men were scorched with fierce heat. 
and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him the glory. They didn't change their mind. Regardless of how often you tell people, choose Jesus, make a decision of your will, make a decision of your conscious mind, look at God's batting average and then choose for him, people just simply cannot do it, as demonstrated here. Even under the worst of circumstances, they don't repent, which makes no logical sense unless the whole of the Bible is true. And the whole of the Bible tells us that men, in their depravity, can't repent. And that's the only excuse. It's the only reason. It's the only rationale for why these people don't repent. And why John pointed that out specifically. That even under this kind of pain, they don't repent. Why? Because they can't. Otherwise, they would. And that's what the Bible says consistently. That in order for men to repent of their sins, in order for people to have faith in Christ, Christ himself has to do something for you. His grace has to be in you. His grace has to draw you. Otherwise, you're not coming. And men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him the glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. Remember a moment ago, I told you that Isaiah, God says, I form the light and I make the darkness. Now he's pouring out his judgment against the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain that they were living in. Not only because they had malignant sores and blood to drink and are scorched by the sun, but now they're living in utter darkness. And they're in such pain that they gnaw their tongues because of the pain. Verse 11 says, and then many of them chose Jesus. (laughs) No? Wrong? Bad reading? Is that what you're getting at? And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and because of their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 12, we'll wrap up with this. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way may be prepared for the kings of the east. This is God beginning to prepare for the battle at Armageddon. We'll get into that next week. But he dries up the Euphrates River. Do you know where the Euphrates River is? If you're looking at a map of the Middle East, the Euphrates River starts in what we would call modern Turkey, and then it cuts down through northern Syria, and it comes down through Iraq, and... The kings of the east are Iran over, which puts you in Pakistan and then China. And it just so happens that at this moment, China has one of the largest standing armies on the planet. But how do you get that big an army all into the Middle East? God dries up the Euphrates River so that they can just walk over dry shod because the next thing we're going to see is that there is a demonic call to come to the war. And people are going to flock to this war where Christ himself is going to mop up the floor with his enemies and begin the establishment of his kingdom. So let's stop there. We'll pick it up next week. I will mention, because there will be somebody on the internet who is typing to me at this very moment, probably using all capital letters, uh, saying, why did you pass right over the uh, throne of the beast, and where is the throne of the beast? You know, some people say that it's uh, Jerusalem because uh, the beast has set up his image in the temple, and that he himself is standing in the temple showing himself that he is God. I think that is the most consistent explanation of the throne of the beast. 
but that means that Jerusalem and as part of God's punishment against Israel, that Jerusalem falls under darkness as well through all of this. But remember that he already has his remnant in Edom, in Moab, in Ammon. He has his people set aside and protected, and he's pouring out this wrath on the whole rest of the planet. So, you know, there are people who argue that the throne of the beast is, depending on what generation of church life you want to look at, you can go back and read a lot of different commentators, uh, one of the more common conclusions is that the throne of the beast is Rome. So if you're really anti-Catholic and you believe the Pope is the Antichrist, then you say that it's Rome. If you're into the left behind stuff and you think that the Antichrist is going to have the name Carpathian just because somebody made that up and wrote it into the books and it was popular in the movies, well, then you're going to say that the throne of the beast is somewhere in Europe, probably Russia. That's the common one. I think it's Jerusalem uh, because within the context of the book of Revelation, we are told that he is standing in the temple where his image is, showing himself that he is God. That locates him. And so to be consistent with the book of Revelation, I would have to conclude that the throne of the beast is in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? But since we're not told anything more specific than that, if you think it's Rome or you think it's Chicago, um, I, you know, make up your own stuff. The only conclusion that's consistent seems to be Jerusalem. So, if you come away with nothing else this morning, you don't need to remember all the details. I'm so very glad to hear that the children at GCA are not blood drinkers. That alone <laughs> was worth the price of admission. Um, But if you come away with nothing else, one more time, what we're seeing in these final chapters of the book of Revelation is it's starting to wrap up as we're getting ready for the final war and then the establishment of the kingdom. And it ends on a very high note, the new Jerusalem. As we see all of that, we're going to continue seeing the demonstration of God's absolute sovereignty over human life and over planet Earth and recognize that even in God's wrath, even when sickness comes, even when difficulties and tribulations in this life come, that they're still in the hand of God. So you don't need to ask, where's God in all this? He's right in the center of all of it. So thank him when things are going great and bless his holy name when things are going difficult because he's God either way and he's going to continue to be God and he's not going to change the way he is to suit you. He's going to be exactly like he has always said he's going to be, and that means all of that stuff is coming. Yeah? Clear. Okay. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.